Bigfoot. It's a show about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, the hopers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit our Facebook page. This is Sasswood, a show about Bigfoot. I am one of your hosts, Mark Matsky, and it is my privilege to introduce to you my son, Andy. Hello there. How are you doing? Doing great. Recorded anything lately? Other podcasts, maybe? Uh, other podcasts, perhaps? <laughs> Why, yes, come to think of it. We just got done doing Monsterland Ohio Radio, which is our baby podcast that we've nurtured for couple three years. It's been a yeah. baby for three years. <laughs> He's just learning how to talk and things. But um, so yeah, we did. Uh, we just recorded a show about Kong Skull Island. In fact, we gave our take on a lot of prominent Kong films. Pretty much every Kong movie ever. So if you want to know how we feel about Kong Skull Island and other Kong movies, tune into Monsterland Ohio Radio. You can find it on iTunes and at monsterlandohio.blogspot.com. Yeah! <laughs> it was a great movie. It was, I'm like... Spoilers for I'm the episode. I'm trying to hold back my enthusiasm, but... So anyway, yes. Um, so we've been doing that, and um, we've got a great conversation to share with Colin Schneider, who reached out to us through the Facebook page, and I'm really glad that he did. Because this young man is a force to be reckoned with in cryptozoology circles. It's incredible. I cannot wait for you to hear him talk about not just Bigfoot, but he has a real sense of um, like some big picture type stuff that's just really great. And I, I'm excited for people to hear this interview. Um, at the news desk, if you want to amble over to the Sasquatch news desk, we can do that because... I have kind of a, I don't know, maybe a heartwarming little piece of news to share. And this news was released actually on Valentine's Day, believe it or not. And this is from the webpage of Senator Ann Rivers of the 18th Legislative District of Washington. And the title of the article is Child's Letter Prompts Bill to Designate Sasquatch as State Cryptid. Olympia, Washington. Washington's legislature has adopted more than 20 state symbols from a state tree to a state folk song and most recently a state oyster and a state waterfall. (laughs) Sorry. That's okay. Sorry, people who petitioned for that. But the state doesn't have a designated cryptid or cryptozoological creature, meaning an animal not proven to exist, such as Scotland's Loch Ness Monster, nor does state law make a single mention of Sasquatch, also commonly referred to as Bigfoot, and sometimes Forest Yeti. (laughs) What? Even though an organization of Bigfoot researchers rank Washington as the national leader in sightings of the legendary being. Skamania and Whatcom counties adopted Sasquatch protection laws more than a quarter century ago. Enter Caleb, a boy in Senator Ann Rivers' southwest Washington legislative district who wrote a letter suggesting official status for the being that once was the mascot of the long-departed Seattle Supersonics professional basketball team and the focus of a major 2010 exhibit at the Washington State History Museum. Rivers couldn't resist what she views as a teaching moment. The result is Senate Bill 5816, through which lawmakers would designate Sasquatch as the state cryptid and recognize Sasquatch's immeasurable contributions to Washington State's cultural heritage and ecosystem and the importance of preserving the legacy of Sasquatch. When our two sons were little, they were fascinated with Sasquatch. The letter I received from my young constituent made it clear that children are still captivated by Sasquatch or Bigfoot, Rivers explained. Why not encourage a young person who is engaged with his government at the same time give some formal recognition to this unique part of our state's folklore? I'm certain that Sasquatch, the most eminent and recognizable cryptid in North America, is a native Washingtonian, and being an official state symbol has to be a big step up from being in television commercials for beef jerky. What do you think? I think that's awesome. I think more states need to have a state cryptid. Um, I think that's great. Um, 
I would like to know the origins of Forest Yeti, but <laughs> I mean that's kind of a little unrelated to the article. But um, well, it's about a Forest Yeti, but still, um, I think that's great. I like how a a young adult wrote in how someone was like, "Hey, why can't we have a state cryptid and why can't it be Bigfoot?" Um, I think if there's a f- a state oyster, was it oyster? Yeah, or, oyster. I think I think there should be a, a state cryptid. So equality to cryptids and oysters, <laughs> yeah, right up there with oysters. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like the like the representative said, it was a really good teaching moment. Said so you'd be responsive mm-hmm. to a young member of society and say this is how bills work and things like that. And the fact that it's Bigfoot makes perfect sense with it being Washington. So I just thought that was a really mm-hmm. cool thing. I'm glad they didn't bring up leprechauns. As creatures oh, no. that don't exist. No. <laughs> Why is Loch Ness Monster That's... like the most recognizable cryptid? It's like cryptid like the Loch Ness Monster. I think Bigfoot would be more recognizable than the Loch Ness Monster. That's an interesting debate. But that's what I think. I think you think cryptid, and even though I'm we're, we're in the community, quote unquote, I would think if you're outside of it, you'd think cryptid Bigfoot. It almost seems like it legitimizes it by being somewhere that's not here. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it's a far-flung mm-hmm. Scotland, little it's a lock somewhere, and there's more of a sense of possibility maybe with that too. I don't know. That's a great question. One we should foist on unsuspecting people sometimes. So, why do you think? But it's it that would be that'd be interesting. Why? So, yeah. that's our that's our news desk item. Um there was Something that came up on the Facebook page that I thought was really cool. I wanted to just read it. This is in response to the Alaska episode. This is from our listener, Stuart. He said, I lived in the Southwest YK Delta in the 80s in Alaska, and they take Big Hairy Man seriously. A village school principal, not a local, thought it would be fun to make some large plywood feet and stomp around the village in the fresh snow. The populace was not amused, and the principal left for the lower 48 Soon, shortly thereafter. Wow. So, Stuart, thanks for sharing yeah, that. I thought that you. was a, a great follow-up to some of the things that we were talking about on the Alaska episode. Thank you for writing in on Facebook, on our Facebook page. Um, I think that's very interesting. So, the moral of the story, hoaxing isn't good for anything. You, you don't want to do that. You'll get kicked out. Especially when it's taken so seriously. Mm-hmm. by people who have lived there for a long time and sort of making light of it in that fashion was not the best choice to make. I think there's a lesson there too about uh, sort of appearing to know better than some people's long-standing um, wisdom that they've shared and passed down. So one thing we haven't done a whole lot of lately, besides in terms of researching for things like uh, Sasquatch Nation episodes, talk about books. So I just wanted to ask you, before we get into the interview portion, what some of the stuff you've been reading lately, just for fun. One thing I finished reading recently, even though I started it a little while ago, was um, A Menagerie of Mysterious Beasts by Ken Gerhard, which is not completely related. Well, it's it's a cryptid book. It's not 100% um, a squirrel just captivated my interest completely. <laughs> There's a branch that's outside my dad's window. And I heard the thump. A Sasso Tower, outside Sasso Tower, and my dad's window at Sasso Tower, and it jumped onto our roof <laughs> from that branch. I heard the thump through it's, the microphone. Forget the squirrel, a Bigfoot threw a rock at the squirrel, <laughs> causing it to jump. Um, sorry, it's Menage Mysterious Beast. It's just, I've never, there it is again. <laughs> Yes, I've it's never, true. I've never seen a squirrel on that tree, I think, at all. We just had a shared sighting. <laughs> squirrel foot. Squirrel foot. <laughs> squirrel yeah. man. Um, That's squirrel man. <laughs> the squirrel man of Lake County. Um, so I'm an Azure Mysterious I've Beast. I've seen him. <laughs> He's here. I'm an Azure Mysterious Beast is talking all about cryptids. It's written by Ken Gerhardt. Um really interesting book because it takes it takes cryptid ideas and kind of shows a little historical context like this is the famous sighting 
and then it talks about modern day sightings that he's received or acquaintances of his has received. Very good book. I'm also reading Bigfoot Encounters in Ohio by Christopher L. Murphy, and that's a very good book. It talks, it's a really good introduction to Bigfoot book. It's like really simple in a good way. It's really simple. Um, and then it goes on to talk about Bigfoot Encounters in Ohio, and I'll, I'll probably chime in a few times about that again, because I just started reading that, so. Is there anything in there Ohio-specific so far that Not caught really. your attention? Not really. There okay. is, there's like, this thing happened here, but I'll, I'm sure there's more. Okay. I'll, it, it's been a little bit since I've read it, so the little right. bit I have read. Okay. I, I'll tell more when I know more. So, what have you been reading, Dad? Well, I have to say a special thank you to Pine Winds Press. They sent us a copy of Witnessing Bigfoot by Glenn Boulier, and this book just came out. It's really fascinating, and so thank you to the folks at Pine Winds Press for doing that. I'm about two-thirds of the way through, and the book is divided up into thirds. The first third is talking about Glenn's experience because he's had he had one sighting in particular that really just changed his whole outlook on everything and got him pushed in the direction of researching Bigfoot first and foremost as a flesh and blood creature but his his research starts to go in different directions in the second segment of the book which has to do with a really in-depth study of a modern-day Native American information about what Sasquatch is. And rather than be, like, very book-centric, he went in the direction of interviewing people and trying to gain their trust today in First Nations cultures. And some people are willing to talk about it, some not so much. So that that really brought forth some interesting information. And then the final third that I haven't looked at in depth yet is sort of his own conclusions based on um, maybe some more uh, spiritual basis, which I'm really interested to see where he goes. But it's a really good read. Mm -hmm. And the thing I love about it most, I think you could appreciate this, is that it's filled with new material. There's nothing in this book that I've ever seen anywhere else. And it's just because of his own... Um, you know, hitting the bricks, talking to people, sending emails himself to people, relevant witnesses and things. It's just all new stuff. And mm-hmm. it's, it, I really love that. So I, think, I hope to give a mm-hmm. full review yeah. once I finish the book. I'll read it too. So right. I really want to read that book. So once we are, once you've finished and once I've finished, I'm sure we'll go into detail about it. Yeah, so thank you to Lori at Pinewinds for sending the book, getting in touch with us. It was awesome and uh, really excited about finishing it. <laughs> Andy's giving it a gentle hug right now. It is. It's a great book. Um, let's see. Anything else that we need to – any housekeeping type stuff we have to do for – Just a general reminder yeah. to check out STM Live on iTunes and Stitcher. So – Small Town Monsters Live. We do that, what, once a month on the first... Usually the first Thursday. Usually so the first Thursday. That will be coming up here. So one soon. will be coming up in April. Keep an eye out for that on Small Town Monsters Facebook feed. No squirrel foot sightings yet anymore. Today on Sasswhat, we are excited to have Colin Schneider with us. Uh, I thought it was pretty cool that for episode or not episode but issue five of cryptic culture magazine uh, our names are pretty close together on the the main cover and that was before um we were getting ready to record for this so uh colin first of all i'd like to say welcome to sasswhat thanks for having me so um, let me let's get started. And first of all, if people um, who are listening to this particular show, if they're not familiar with your work, which is really starting to take off, uh, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in uh, Bigfoot and these other subjects, and uh, kind of what you are up to right now. Okay, so I first got interested. I can't quite 
pin down what specific thing got me really into cryptozoology or any of the weird stuff in general. It was just this big conglomeration of several things throughout one year. Um, when I was a kid, around eight, my dad gave me a book called Mysterious Monsters, which was kind of this companion to a documentary that was made in the 70s. And it was this really cool-looking um, chapter book with this big silhouette of this big monster on the cover, and it was, could monsters be in the forest of Pacific Northwest and blah, blah, blah. And it was very dramatic, and it talked about Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and the Yeti, and I was just fascinated by it. Yeah. One of the other things that got me really into cryptozoology was this show called Monster Quest, which when I was a kid, it was just starting up. Mm -hmm. And I watched every episode, every time it aired, and I was just obsessed with the show. A couple other things got me into it, but those were the two main contributors. Now, a lot of people don't quite know who I am. Um, I am one of the youngest active researchers in the field of cryptozoology. I'm, I'm only 16, and I've been doing this for three or four years now, close to four years. I've been published how nine or ten times in magazines such as Animals and Men, which is the official journal of the Center for Fortean Zoology, of which I'm a member, and uh, Cryptid Culture, which you've previously mentioned. Mm -hmm. I run a blog called Cryptid Ki Crypto Kid, and a I do a live podcast, which just started uh, recently, called Crypto Kid as well. <laughs> Since I am only 16 doing this, I kind of use the name Crypto Kid as a term for myself because I've, I am a unique example of researcher because I'm so young getting into this. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Monster Quest, and I just wanted to go back to that for a second because I think that that is a, kind of an underrated show, but I... Meaning, I think that it's brought a lot of people further into these subjects than they maybe would have been otherwise. It, it almost is like a, in search of of its time, you know, because it took took the subject seriously and all the up graphics and stuff were updated. But um, I know in in the case of my son, you know, he's thirteen and. He wasn't watching it right when it started, but we got DVD box sets and stuff and started watching them episode by episode. And I can just say from our own experience that that was a, was a huge deal uh, to watch Monster Quest. It, it made a big impression on my son. Oh, definitely. Monster Quest, in my opinion, actually is more important to cryptozoology than In Search of purely because Monster Quest was, is really the first show that was a continuing series that dealt only in the cryptozoology. You know, I mean, within search of, you got episodes on UFOs, uh, faith healers, ghosts, all this wide range of things, and that really helped boost the general subject of The Unexplained, but it only had, I think, maybe 15 episodes just on cryptozoological subjects. I got the box set of In Search Of for Christmas, and I watched all of the episodes. Wow. And it definitely is excellent, but I think that Monster Quest is more important because it was so groundbreaking because it was the first of its kind. Yeah, you are right. I mean, it was completely centered on cryptozoology and you know, even things that uh, it sort of straddled old cases and, and brought new cases to the forefront. So that that's cool. I, I enjoy talking about that show because it's it is. I know in my in the case of our family, it, it really kickstarted a lot of things. So 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 back to to you and you you said that um, you've got your own podcast. That's Crypto Kid and. Um, what are you working on right now that is keeping you going? Well, my main... So I have several different projects that I've been working on um, at the same time. But my main project that I'm doing, I'm 
one of the most popular cryptids is the chupacabra. And for a long time, it was one of my favorite cryptids. And I started looking at some of the reports one day, and I noticed that there were a lot of reports that were associated with the chupacabra that seemed to have been done by this cat, by a cat-like creature. For example, the Beast of Bladenboro, who in the, the 50s in North Carolina attacked and mutilated and drained the blood of many different uh, livestock and pets. And that the creature's been associated with both anomalous big cats and the chupacabra. So I wondered if there were any cases that have been um, that have been associated with the chupacabra that maybe were related to a different cryptid or something else. So that's I've been working on that. I have logged close to 200 examples of cryptids draining the blood of livestock or pets or other animals that aren't quite chupacabra creatures. And a good portion of those, I think close to 50 of them, are hairy humanoid reports. Hmm. So that's been my big project. Yeah. Um, one of the other projects that I've been doing, that I've been working on, is looking at cryptozoological topics and relating them to fairy lore. Tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, I don't, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who would want to sure. pick up the uh, article. So um, however much you're comfortable, talk about that a little bit, because I think that's fascinating. Definitely. The newest issue of Cryptid Culture, I wrote an article called Monsters of the Fae. And basically the article goes over three important cryptozoological topics and connects them to fairy lore. Now, since this is a Bigfoot show, I'll, I'll briefly go over how Bigfoot can be connected to fairies, because I know when I first looked into the... When I first thought of the connection, uh, a lot of people I approached about the subject were <laughs> little, little flying-winged people connected to a giant hairy man. Yeah. How, how, how does that relate? Right. So, a key thing with Bigfoot reports, for as long as the creature has been in our psyche, has been abductions done by the creature. Oftentimes it's um, women. And the best known abduction was that of Albert Osterman in 1924. Uh, if you don't know the story, for those listeners who don't know, I'll briefly explain. Albert Osterman was a hunter and hiker who was up in British Columbia, Canada, 1924, when he was abducted by a family of Sasquatch. They drug him out of, the male of the family drug him out of camp by his sleeping bag, carried him for several miles to a cave where an older female and then two smaller ones that he assumed were younger children, teenagers close to. Mm-hmm a male and a female. He stayed with them for a while. He felt that the family wanted him to mate with the female child. He eventually escaped and became this iconic figure in the realm of Bigfoot. He's, his case is in the top five best-known um, Bigfoot experiences. Now, a staple of fairy lore specifically in Ireland and Scotland, is the abduction by fairies. Fairies were known to be these trickster-type beings. They loved to play mischievous jokes on unsuspecting travelers. And one of the things they would love to do is just abduct someone and take them off to this place known as the fairy realm or the realm of the fae that they would keep and basically just party with. That's what the fairies love to do. Okay. But one of the interesting legends that is a little bit more obscure 
suggests that the fairies were actually going extinct and they needed, um, they, they were taking humans to mate with to survive, to kind of make this hybrid species that would keep their line going. Now, I'm not saying that Bigfoot is a fairy by any extent of the word, but I think that it's interesting to look at older folk tales and connect them to modern accounts. Because I think that a lot of this has, um, ha- has a lot of life in folklore, and I think that it's really important to understand the folklore before you get into the reports. Yeah, and I think, now if I'm hearing you right, I mean, the, the fairies that are in the folklore that you're talking about, they have a lot more in terms of powers, if you will, than just like the oh. you know, the uh, cliche, like you said, the fairies that sort of float around and land on uh, flowers and things like that. We're talking about sort of a, oh. a different type of creature, correct? Or entity, if you will. Definitely. These fairies were these elemental beings that were incredibly feared and... Um, they, they were more or less protectors of the forest as well as just being mischievous tricksters and they could they had they could wield these elemental powers and they could pretty much do whatever they wanted hmm. but I think it's interesting to note that in Native American legends specifically in the Pacific Northwest there are stories of these bigfoot like creatures um, of whatever tribe you're looking at being these powerful protectors of nature, these powerful protectors of the forest, these guardian spirits, if you will, that were incredibly powerful. Now, most of them are mischievous like the fairies, but they are very, very similar. Right, and they're coming from different, um, you know, different, entirely different regions of the world. Right, I mean, we're like we're talking about uh, European uh, in you know, British Isles with fairies and things of that nature, and then in uh, North America, you've got a, a similar set of uh, folkloric tales where these um, same type of creatures are described in a very similar way. It really raises a lot of questions. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean. One of the one of the interesting things about fairies when you're looking at the lore is because is that what is the folklore like the best known example of the fairy in the folklore of the British Isles that that archetype can be seen in nearly every culture. I mean, you have the jinn of um, Arabia and the Middle East, and then you have various ancestor spirits around um, North America, as well as creatures as the Pukwudjis, or various other little peoples in the Native American folklore. And then you have all these um, all, all these spirits in various African tribes lore. So, the term fairy is very specifically British and English, but what they are described as and the idea of the archetype can really be seen wherever around the world. I'd like to go back to an earlier comment that you made, and it was in reference to the uh, creatures that were draining the blood of others. And you mentioned that there were uh, uh, the hairy uh, hominid creature that was included in you know, those, that grouping of tales. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, do we, the type of stories or or reports you're talking about, the link is made in what way? Do people see that happening or do they find large Bigfoot type prints around, uh, you know, a site where uh, a creature's, you know, like a cow or what have you has had its blood drained? How does, what's the connection there? That's, uh, there is, a wide range of reports. There are legends of creatures that are hairy humanoids that attack cattle and drain their blood. 
both in South America, specifically Brazil, and um, the Yeti has been reported to do it in Nepal, both in historical legends and modern reports. Now, specifically with Bigfoot, one of the first reports I found was actually of a creature called the Chicken Man, the Abominable Chicken Man. Hmm. Um, This specific example happened in El Reno, Oklahoma, in December of 1970. There is a farmer who reported hearing strange sounds coming from his chicken coop one night. And when he went out to investigate, he found his, his chickens dead, the door hanging off the hinges to the chicken coop, blood everywhere, feathers everywhere. And he found giant footprints in the snow around the chicken coop and bloody handprints in the chicken coop hmm. on the walls. He said they, they looked similar to a human's, but they were a lot larger, and they seemed, the hands specifically seemed to be slightly deformed. Pictures were taken of the prints, both the hand and the feet, and sent to a sent to the um, curator at the local zoo, the Oklahoma City Zoo, who compared it compared the prints to wide range of suspects such as gorillas, bears, humans, etc. And he determined that the prints were very similar to humans, but the hand prints specifically had finger characteristics similar to that of a gorilla's. For example, the um, one of the fingers was out, was jutting out like a gorilla's, but the um, rest of the fingers seemed very similar to a human's. Now, there was another case two years later in um, Indiana, Rochdale, Indiana, in August uh, 22nd of 1972. There was a family, again, this revolved around the chicken coop, a family heard strange noises in their chicken coop near dusk. They went with it. When they went out to investigate, they found a line of their chickens ripped open and drained of blood. Hmm. And the door to the chicken coop was ripped off. They called the local marshal. He came to investigate. They were looking around the chicken coop when they heard a noise down the road. The marshal hopped in his car, and the two farmers that were there went, were walking behind the car to, to check out the sound. And one of the farmers, the one in the back, as they were walking, that he saw this large thing stand up from the ditch on the side of the road and run across the road towards the farm. He didn't get a good look at it. He said that it was really large, dark, and humanoid. It Hmm. looked like a human, Mm -hmm. but larger. So they hightailed it back to the chicken coop where they saw the creature standing in the doorway the doorway was eight by six foot, and the creature was completely blocking all light from the doorway oh, of wow. the chicken coop. Okay. As they approached it, it saw them, took off into nearby cornfields, and as it ran, they shot at it. They said they were sure they hit it, but it didn't appear to be harmed. All in all, I think a hundred, a hundred and. Ten chickens were killed, ripped open, and then drained of blood. Very similar to a chupacabra attack, but according to the witnesses, it was a Bigfoot creature that did it. Wow. So, and and the sense of this is that the the chickens are left intact, but just drained of blood. I mean, they're not chewed on or in, in any other way. Like they're not. It's not after the flesh of these creatures. It's after the blood. Right. The second case specifically, they, uh, the witnesses noted several times that they were exsanguinated, mm-hmm. they drained of blood. Um, in the first case, the chicken man case in El Reno, the chickens were just missing, but there was blood everywhere, and it seemed like the um, 
creature had just ripped through them. Yeah. Wow. And what a massive creature, too. That, that description is just unbelievable of him being in the doorway like that. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> what What's kind of your favorite... Um, Favorite report to to investigate or favorite topic in this whole sort of paranormal and cryptozoological realm? What what's what are you usually going to go to first? Uh, my my immediate go to has always been Bigfoot. Okay, and because that was the first thing I was interested in, as pretty much every cryptozoologist will say. <laughs> right. That was the first thing that I heard of. That was the first thing that made me go, huh, that's interesting. Yeah. But from Bigfoot, I re- I'm really interested in the weirder aspects, like the mm-hmm. blood draining, like the fairy connections. Sure. Um, I've done a lot of research into UFO connections with... Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite authors and a good friend of mine is Dan Gordon, who you've previously interviewed. Yes. So I like a lot of the weirder stuff connected to Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. But other than Bigfoot, um, I'm incredibly interested in the Dogman. I've had two articles published talking about the Dogman. The first one was just the Ohio Dogman, because that's where I live. And the second one is discussing the possibility of escaped kangaroos explaining some dogman reports. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. The, just the visual of that when you said that, um, you know, you start to see pictures in your head, and uh, that's pretty fascinating. The um, what some of the conclusions that you came to on the the kangaroo overlap with dogman. Well, when I first was looking into the Dogman, um, I was reading one of Linda Godfrey's books, mm-hmm. uh, The Michigan Dogman, and she mentioned kind of offhand that in one of the chapters that the report reminded her of a kangaroo. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. I, I've always loved animals, but I've always been really interested in animals specifically in the rainforests of South America. So that's where a lot of my knowledge is. So I'm not very familiar with a lot of the animals in Australia. I mean, I obviously know kangaroos, but at the time I hadn't really put much thought to it. So later I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw this video of a kangaroo standing at a guy's window at his house. And it's scratching at the window and kind of hopping and trying to get in. <laughs> and my first reaction was, holy crap, that's a werewolf. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you couldn't quite see the tail in the video, but the kangaroo, its ears looked very similar to a dog's. It, its face obviously looks very similar to a dog's, a little more broad, but it just looked like a werewolf. It had these very long claws, whatever. So I was asked to do an article for uh, Animals and Men, by the director, John Downs, who's a very good friend of mine. And I thought, hmm, it would be really interesting to look into a kangaroo connection. So I, I've kind of determined that, yeah, they could definitely explain some of the accounts. But with almost every dogman encounter that I've been able to track down specifically when it happened and exactly where, there were no escaped kangaroos anywhere in the area, really. Mm-hmm. Pretty much like any of the people who say, oh, well, it, uh, the Bigfoot was obviously just an escaped gorilla or an escaped chimpanzee. There were no escaped animals in hmm. that area at the time. So it's definitely something to keep an eye out for dealing with any dogman report. And it always should be something at the forefront of your mind, because in my opinion, that is the best natural skeptical explanation for a dogman sighting. Hmm. You're familiar with that picture in uh, Mysterious America, where the kangaroo, the phantom kangaroo, is standing in the cornfield? Do you ever seen that picture in Lauren Coleman's book? Oh, yes. Mysterious America is one of my favorite books. Yeah. Um, and I actually used it as an example of 
sightings of kangaroos in the past in okay. America. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, you know, when I was, boy, um, I don't know, probably three or four years younger than you are now. And that was the first time I got my hands on Mysterious America. And there's just something about that picture that I found very striking because it was so out of place, I think. You never even considered a kangaroo or a wallaby in any other setting uh, besides a zoo or Australia, obviously. And to see one in sort of the context of a, a place that was not unlike where I was living at the time really just uh it was a tremendous moment for me in just seeing that picture so i it's it's amazing how those two things sort of interweave um the right and that's absolutely fascinating when you're looking at when, when you're out in the woods not expecting to see something weird or anything and you see a creature that you've seen before but you're in an area that it definitely shouldn't be mm-hmm. you're going to kind of freak out because it's definitely an unnatural thing even though it's a creature you've seen before you've been up close with the zoo, at a zoo with or whatever it's always going to be weird and be something that is ingrained in your mind so with bigfoot and ufos what are some of your favorite cases that uh just highlight the utter strangeness of that. Because I have to say, I mean, folks who have listened to this show know, and I'm sure you're probably aware, that I I have the same sort of interest in the, the weirder fringe Bigfoot stories. And for a lot of people, that's just going a step too far. But I, I really appreciate the fact that, you know, you're not scared away from those type of things. So what are, what are some of the cases that, catch your attention well um to kind of answer that i kind of have to explain how i met stan gordon oh please um so i was at a mensa conference which is um a mensa is a high iq society i was um with my dad at the conference Mm -hmm. and before the conference my dad said hey there's going to be a guy talking about ufos and bigfoot i said Oh, cool. <laughs> I looked up Stan Gordon's name. So I was I recognized it, but I wasn't quite familiar. I was clicking around on his website, not really reading anything, just looking at the pictures or whatever. And mm-hmm. I, I was kind of sitting there thinking, wow, this guy's a little uh, <laughs> over the top here uh-huh. with the UFOs and stuff. Because that was, that was at the time when I was very gung-ho about Bigfoot being a biological entity. Sure. So when we got to the conference, I said, now still go to the talk, um, hang out. See, it sounded interesting. Mm-hmm. And so I was sitting there at Stan's talk, and I don't know, it was just the way he presented the cases um, and the way he explained it with this, oh, Stan has the best, like, 1970s UFO, like, news file voice (laughs) yeah like it it, it just he sounds perfect for any type of thing with that like it it just is right there Mm -hmm. so i was just captured and i remember he talked about the case in uniontown during the 73 74 wave of bigfoot and ufo sightings in western pennsylvania the the sighting in uniontown where the family saw the large um, UFO, the large dome in their um, field, and then the two Bigfoot come, and they shoot at the Bigfoot, and then the dome disappears. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated by that case. And after Stan's talk, I made my dad go out to the ATM and get out money so I could get all of Stan's books. <laughs> and I spent the rest of the night reading them, and by the time I was done, I was thinking, holy crap, Bigfoot's an alien. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and not even a week and a half afterwards, I went to the Mothman Festival down in West Virginia and saw Stan again, and we hung out. And we really started talking, and he introduced me to, to some of the colleagues that I work with closely 
now. I work with uh, Ronald Murphy, if you haven't heard of him. Mm-hmm. He's another big researcher in Pennsylvania. He's a very good friend of mine. We had a, we had a podcast for a while. Um, I wrote a forward for one of his books, and we're working on a book together. Oh, nice. He introduced me to Ken Gerhard, mm-hmm. Nick Redfern, some of the big guys. And I've worked with them. They've helped me with research. I've helped them with research. And so I really owe Stan a lot. So when it comes to Bigfoot and UFO reports, really what I know best is the Western Pennsylvania accounts. I know a good amount of the reports very, very well, and I won't recount many of them or any of them because you've had Stan on just recently and Mm -hmm. probably heard them all before. So that's definitely what I know the best. I am vaguely familiar with a lot of the other reports around there and um because of my research with fairies i do know quite a bit about the connections between fairies and ufos and then thus the connections between um bigfoot and ufos in a general sense all right colin i wanted to ask you this you have made connections with a lot of you know pretty big names in cryptozoology and you walked us through kind of uh, Stan Gordon introducing you to people which is really cool and completely in character with what I know about Stan but what have you found is um, when you talk to these researchers uh, have you have you found them to be uh, pretty open with you as far as sharing reports have you uh, run into anybody who's kind of proprietary about their research, or has it been uh, pretty uh, open for you? Well, um, initially, yes. Everyone's been very, very open. But the, the biggest problem that I seem to run into is because of my youth, a lot of people um, immediately dismiss me as just another kid that's seen a lot of mountain monsters and finding Bigfoot and ah. thinks that he knows everything and... Um, hasn't doesn't have any idea who uh, Bernard Hoovelmans was or Ivan T. Sanders oh, okay. or any of the actual founding fathers. So right. I, I've run into this thing where a lot of people um, just automatically think I'm just a kid who doesn't have a lot of basis in um, actual research. Mm-hmm. But um, luckily, Stan is often at these conferences and introduces me to people and definitely helps ease me into um, dispersing that idea. But I have found that a lot, there there is a lot of infighting between people. There are um, definitely, there was a group that I was involved with for a while and um, there was like this list of people that they didn't want me involved with. Oh man. And, um, I, I, I've met most of the people on that list and I didn't have any problem with them. Okay. And I've kind of been disassociated with that group purely because I have been, I am involved in talking to the people that they've told me not to. Wow. Um, I try to be very open with people. I try to be very, um, nice and accepting and I I don't have any problems with anyone Um, we're we're all here for the same goal so I I don't see why we can't all get along Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah I I agree with that 100% and I think that's the the people you know it's no mistake that the, the people who are most enjoyable to talk to sort of have that same philosophy uh, regarding the information that we're all looking for. So that that's that's good. Although it's unfortunate, I think that even you know at age sixteen, you've already been exposed to sort of the the politics that happen, even in uh, in unexplained research. That, that's that's kind of wild to me. Yeah, it's it's pretty frustrating. I mean, I've I am probably one of the biggest proponents you will find out there in the field about sharing literally every scrap of information Mm -hmm. anyone has. I think that complete um, sharing of research between everybody is the best thing we can do. Because when you look at science, they don't 
um, scientists don't say, no, this is my research on such and such animal or such and such particle. You can't touch it. This is my stuff. <laughs> Stay away. Mm-hmm. It's all, oh, wow. You looked at something with this chemical? Well, I found out this. Let's work together. Yeah. I mean, even during the Cold War, chemists in America and chemists in Russia worked together to find new um, to find new elements for the periodic table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, I think that's actually one of the most important things that we can possibly do to try to be taken seriously in, in the academic field. Mm-hmm. Is there anything recently that you've uncovered uh, that you're particularly excited about, especially with regard to Bigfoot, or any like new reports that you've heard that you think have some uh, legitimacy? Well, um, unfortunately, not a lot. Okay. Uh, I don't personally get a lot of inflow of reports to me at all. Mm-hmm. I think I've maybe gotten at most five or six reports ever. Okay. Um, but that, that's purely because um, right now I'm smaller fish. I'm not the guy you see on TV or the guy you see constantly at conferences. So sure, um, I'm not the person that people go to because I'm not a known name. Mm-hmm. Um, right now I w- I've been working on a lot of historical research, a lot of things that if people took the time to look for, they could definitely find it. The most exciting thing I've found lately is, and I actually wrote about this in my um, first article for Cryptid Culture in the uh, last issue, issue four, talking about my mutilations and the blood-sucking cryptids. Mm-hmm. I found in Low, the um, second book by Charles Fort. Charles Fort spent, and if you don't know who Charles Fort is, he was really the first person to look into the unexplained, the unknown, the weird. Um, he wrote several books basically cataloging everything he could find that was weird going around in the world. And Fort actually spent four or five chapters talking about animals that mutilated and drained the blood of um, various livestock around the world. Mm-hmm. And the most fascinating examples were um, of almost marauding uh, canines that were going around in Scotland in the early 1800s, draining the blood of sheep. They they drained eight to ten sheep a night for most nights, and it was it was it was very erratic. They went on for a year and a half in one place, and then it stopped for almost a decade, and then it picked up somewhere else. And that that's the most fascinating thing I found, and I found it just. I just stumbled over it uh, rereading um, my copies of Fort's book. Mm-hmm. Nice. Something else that I um, I recently got, actually someone sent to me. This is one of the few times I've gotten something from someone. Um, I'm not quite sure about what a lot of this is. But the, this guy sent me several photos of what he claims to be these amoeba-like creatures that live in the sky, and he says that they explain a lot of UFO reports. Hmm. I thought it was fascinating, and um, I've been emailing back and forth for a while, and the photos are very interesting. Uh, I'm not going to say much more because even though I'm very specific about open discussion, I do think that... Um, while determining the validity of a lot of reports, you need to be um, very specific about what you give out. Mm-hmm. But um, I hope to uh, learn more about the reports and maybe have him on my podcast sometime in the future to discuss it. So if any of your listeners are interested, um, listen to my podcast. I should talk about it sometime soon. Oh, yeah. Cool. Now tell us again, um, if somebody's interested in your podcast, how to find it. Where are they going to look? Well, the best place to find any of my information is at my blog, which is paranorm101.blogspot.com. And there you'll find links to my podcast, to the network that I'm on with my podcast, uh, 
the dates and when it, when the show will air, um, etc. And um, the other place you can find me is on Facebook if you search crypto um, hyphen kid. So it's just crypto dash kid. Okay. You can find any. Um, uh, you, you'll find my Facebook page. It's got a picture of me up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the best place for up to date information about um, whatever I'm working on. Excellent. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, before we wrap things up, I just want to, because, uh, you know, this has been like the fastest 50 minutes ever. <laughs> um, if you had to say this is the most compelling piece of data or evidence about Bigfoot, I know that's a gigantic question, but if you had to, if you had to pick one thing to put in front of somebody and say, well, what do you think about this? Uh, what would that be? Well, normally when talking physical evidence, I have two things that I point to. Mm-hmm. First, the Cripplefoot cra- uh, casts in Bosburg, Washington. The, uh, I can't remember what year, but I think it was the 80s. In Washington, these naturalists found this line of several hundred tracks in the snow leading to the forest. One foot was regular Bigfoot, but the other foot appeared to be crippled. It it was morphed. It it looked strange. It looked like it was injured, and then it healed in um, a strange way. If if any of your listeners haven't heard of the Bosberg tracks or the Cripplefoot tracks, just Google it. You can find all the information as well as pictures. And I think it's very fascinating because uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum was able to analyze hundreds of tracks from around the country. He was able to determine the the general skeletal anatomy of the foot, and it's very consistent with the cripple foot tracks as well. In the cripple foot tracks, he could determine where the bones potentially would have been after the injury. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think is um, very fascinating is the Skookum cast. Also in Washington, Jeff Meldrum was also connected with this. It's a full body cast print of a large humanoid creature. You can see a buttocks print, a heel print, a, a um, palm print. It's very, very fascinating. If you you look up the Skookum cast on Google, you'll be able to find it. And I think those two are the best physical examples that we have. But in terms of just best evidence, I think that it um, I think that it's just the raw data, the sheer number of sightings that have occurred. Um, there's no real good database to find like every sighting ever reported unlike ufos there are several places that you can find those but the closest we have is the bfro website the bigfoot field researchers organization they have an excellent map uh, of every case they've examined and i think it's like 2000 or something Mm -hmm. and that's just reported to them so if you think all of the cases that every that anyone has collected, and then you consider how many cases that people haven't reported because they're either scared or they were unable to or whatever. Mm-hmm. Just the sheer number that it that it's got to be is, I think, the most convincing thing. Yeah. Well, Colin, I have to say thank you very much. It does my heart a lot of good. To know that there is a generation coming up that um, clearly knows their stuff and is you know, genuinely interested in the the topic just for the sake of the research and the mystery. And um, I, I certainly hope that you will come on to Saswat again in the future because I could easily see us doing this again sometime. I, I hope that you could too. Oh, yeah, definitely. I had a wonderful time. Thank you for having me on. Oh, absolutely. 
And one more time, if somebody has something that they would like to pass your way, how would they get that information to you? You can find my blog at Paranorm, P-A-R-A-N-O-R-M, 101.blogspot.com, or find me on Facebook at, uh, my page is Crypto-Kid. That's it. All right. Thank you so much, Colin. It's been a really great conversation. I appreciate that.